Well, good morning. <clears throat> so I'm going to continue today with, um, I said we have about eight points of sort of movement through this weekend. <clears throat> so I'm going to continue into two of them that are more points. I just think they're, they're transcendently helpful to know where there's something that's the homework of the human race. Like when I was a child, I would have liked to know. And uh, <clears throat> I always think it would be interesting to have a kind of cosmic weather report <laughs> where you have a little radio program and you just have five minutes. And rather than reporting the weather, you say, there's difficulty in Madagascar toward a famine. Yemen really needs our deep attention. <clears throat> Leaders of the world, please pull your virtues into place and care for the Yemenese people. It's going relatively well at the Olympics. My bowing in honor to the Japanese people and all that they're bringing to humanity. And I hope you have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow. Like, you could range just out around the disturbances, the ease, because people are constantly present from the depth of their soul to the most fundamental, modest aspects of daily life, trying to be present and aware and loving. Right. Almost everyone is doing their best trying to do that. And when it's terribly disturbing, sensitive people become irate, conflicted, upside down. And someone goes, would you like tea this morning? And, they, and, they, and you don't know what to say. I don't know whether to jump out the window, tell you how stupid it is that you didn't bring my favorite mug because I didn't know it was in the dishwasher, or whether we should enjoy bowing to one another and loving each other and having our tea. It's like... People don't know which level of attention they should be paying attention to. So they tend to pay attention to both the highest and lowest. And then they create thoughts and reactions and then project that, and that's the mood of the day. You know, and we're, we're sort of better athletes than that globally, but we're a bit messy in how we handle our practices, usually, daily. So we go through these uh, messy periods of conflict because we don't understand our homework. I mean, I, I really feel that's where a great deal of the sincerity of human compassion arises from that place because someone will walk in who'll understand why a baby is crying. I remember my mother coming into uh, a room where there was a young couple with their first child and the baby was crying and my mother came over and said, do you think he could be hungry? And the mother said, well, I didn't want to feed him and go out of the room. And the mother said, but the baby needs you to do that now. And the woman said to me, how did your mother know that the baby was hungry? And my mother said to her, well, the cry is slightly different for hunger than it is for fatigue or that, the, that they're wet. And the mother started to pay attention and said, she could find over the next few days four distinct cries in her child. It was so easy for my mother to love this woman and her child and the father of the child. And it brought her infinite joy to come in and embrace the baby and the mother and pass the thread of that, like the winds of God moving through the women. That baby is now 26 years old, and the most recent photograph I saw of him was on a kayaking trip out in the southwest with friends of his and his girlfriend and their big Labrador dog, right? So his life is fulfilled by the love of women, including his mother, 
and women he may never remember. And so his days are fulfilled by someone listening for his cry because they want to see him fully fulfilled in God, right? Isn't that what every human being is? So why don't we live that way? Because we just are not taught in an adequate way that translation point of grace. So I'm going to go into two points that are sort of um, part of the homework, and then I want to spend the rest of the day in the garden in the sense of part of the beauty that I perceive is evident now. There's a concept of in an era... You will have a person whose nature is simply a particular temperament, or they have a very extreme level of training, and they can perceive a season of what is coming. Right? I love the old farmers who would know the kind of winter that was arising, because they could read many of the signs in the animals, and the plants, and the land, and the sky, and they would start talking about how to be with the amount of wood to bring in the preparations to make, or the kind of seed to be planted in the next spring. How did they know that? And then I would watch them impart that to a grandchild, or how my grandfathers would teach me about the weather that was coming. So if I'm in the Finger Lakes, I can look at the sky and pretty much tell you what it'll be for about the next six days. Where did I learn that from my grandfathers? I look all over the sky and the land and the feeling of the air, and I, I simply know this. I was conceived and born there, but they taught me. So you'd hear a weather report, and my grandfather would just shake his head and say, no, there'll be about, it won't be a day and a half, it'll be about three days, and the storm will be like this. And I've seen medicine men do this, where they knew something was coming eight or nine days out. They would be in a system of something that is real, which we usually don't feel safe to embody and represent because other people hurt our feelings when we do. As soon as a person comes into any area and they are comprehensively not armored and asleep, we come in and think, you're an enemy. You are wise enough that you could outsmart my weapons. And we come in and we break their heart. And then they put up a veil adequately to protect themselves or their spouse or their child, and we go, good, I got gotcha. you. And then they aren't allowed to safely live with whatever they're doing to bless mankind. Right? So we, we come into a situation of, um, you know, we have a woman here who's a wonderful candy store and two incredible children she's raised after their father died, and I've never seen her miss a beat in all the years I've known her. Right? And so she'll have her heart broken, she'll come right back in and bring it forward again and again and again. So when this happens in very deep training, uh, a being like me is taught principles so that I can represent them. It's like I'm not a really great cook, but if I were talking to my two stepdaughters, they would have recipes they would want to try. One they watched on television or saw in a book or had from one of their grandmothers. And so they are practicing a level of caretaking their families through the nurturing of them. Okay, so if I said, there is none, there's no nutmeg, what will you do instead? There are no blackberries. It's too early or late. They might, when they were younger, go, well, I can't make the recipe. But now they might tend to say, well, we could use elderberries. Or we could not do berries, we could do it this way. Right? And so their alignment would not be lost in the mood of what is changing in the day. 
And so when this becomes more and more profound, this is how life tests you. It's to build a muscle, not of your personality or identity, but a muscle of your suppleness in eternity. How do you move through time so that in space you are beyond all harm? Right? That would be the human being. And that is a glorious, joyful, courageous, noble path. Right? That is the path of every single human being that is equal in all of us. And yet it is distinctly different in what is given to each of the Evans who are here to do, each of their wives, each of their children. So how do we find this symphony of movement like birdsong through one being and another and a couple and a family when all around us people are consciously and unconsciously trying to break our hearts every moment? Please shut down, please stop, please close down. Please don't do that. I'm not ready. I don't have enough yet of something. And if you ask the person, what is it you don't have enough of? They really don't know. They're really just scared that if they start to awaken, something bad will happen. And what they're reflecting upon is they can't remember where they came from. So they're afraid they will be abandoned yet again. And so we create a reality based on that anxiety, and then we create a world that is an avoidance of the remembrance of home and the quality of being of that remembrance of home, and therefore becoming a child of God on the earth. So when a bird has its young fledge, it's not hating them and telling them to go away. It's teaching them to live in heaven on earth as themselves, as the children of those birds, and it hasn't rejected them. It's, it's birthed them physically and then spiritually out into the universe, right? Which is an infinitely safe place if you look for heaven everywhere. It will never fail you. But people will break your heart, oh, you're so stupid, you know, you're so innocent. How could you possibly believe that grace will answer you? I go, how could you possibly believe that it wouldn't? What else is there out there? People think, you can't really feel that. I go, I feel it all the time. There isn't a person on the face of the earth who could get me to turn away from it. But if they were around me, they would start turning toward it. So would they like me? Would they not like me? Would they want me to be around them? Would they not? But if you walk effortlessly through the world, following your path, the ebb and flow of the people you encounter will find that meaning with you, or not, yet your prayers for them are within you, for every, all, everyone, all beings, and then you just humbly live that to the best of your ability, imperfect, and yet this supple human being who is alive every breath until your body falls away, and you go to the home you came from. And so all the ideas that you won't exist, or something will be bad or wrong, the only part of it that is dissonant is what you got talked into that wasn't of grace, right? So why would you listen to that? See, because you don't really belong to that. You belong more to heaven. So <clears throat> part of the difficulty historically is if you're too much on your path, you might be killed. If you were too virtuous a person, somebody else might go off with their head, you know, or get rid of those people from that tribe. Or that person who birthed the baby, they're, you know, how did they know to use that herb? She must be a witch. 
And the one would think, no, no, it's what saved the baby's life. And the other people would think, I know, you must be doing something magical and be evil. And you'd go, how is saving your grandchild's life evil? And the people weren't feeling that. They were more feeling that they were awakening while she was around them. So they, they said, we have to shut her down. We have to hurt her, push her away, crucify him, poison the Buddha. Right? So our stories are filled with theology of how to awaken and avoidance of being crucified and poisoned. Right? They're not about the water into wine which is actually where eternity and the divine dwell. And when we study that, we start to become of that. And then we feel inside of ourselves compelled to answer that. And, and we are inspired by Holy Spirit, divine, the divine name. What is it that infuses us with itself? And that also is equal in all of us when it's embodied. So when this meets between us and among us, we always know what to do. And to me, this is the critical mass humanity has reached, is we're at that point of that occurring. So I want to go into two little areas, and then we're going to come back to that. And that's, that would be in Amy's garden, that, 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 that principle. So the two points are, in, in history, when we um, fail a classroom and we're, we're really bad, we're, we're given sort of a punishment. And uh, when I was getting ready for this, I thought, what are some places where I've been like truly evil in my life? And I came to two points when I was a little girl, and I stole flowers in a garden. I've told this story once before. I was walking to school along a creek, and there was a, a, a concrete wall over part of it in case it was a flooded area. So we would walk along the top of the wall, and you could see down into the backyards of people. So we were walking to St. Anne's School. This is in western New York State. And this one older woman had this incredible garden. She could see it from her kitchen window. It was the only place in her house she could see it from. She was a widow. And as you looked out through the garden, she couldn't see the back part of the garden. And so I thought, well, she doesn't need those flowers because she can't even really see them. And it's the month of May, and, and the, the women at the school are going to prepare. It was a Catholic school. They're going to prepare some vases in the church to put flowers for Mary. And there weren't any. We had come in for May 1st, and there were no flowers on the altar. The, the nuns had just not, get, not gotten that together. It wasn't really part of their world. But they had the vases ready. And I thought, well, now they need the flowers. And she has this incredible garden here, and she sees it and looks out her kitchen window. It brings her so much happiness. I'm just going to climb down from the wall and pick the back row, just, you know, 20 blossoms, and just occasionally so that you don't really see the density of the flowers change too much. And so I picked different ones, and then I climbed back on the wall and went to school. <clears throat> and the nuns still didn't get the flowers, like two days later, and it was going to be the weekend. And I thought, well, I guess I'll just have to do this again, because nobody's gathered the responsibility to get the flowers to put on the altar. So I did it again. And then I came home from school, and my mother was there with a, a rather grim look on her face. Did you steal flowers? I said, I, I didn't steal any flowers. You took flowers from a woman's yard. I said, well, there weren't any at the church, and the, the women are all ready to have this big May Day festival with the children, you know, at Mass on Sunday, and they didn't have any flowers, and she wasn't using them. <laughs> and she couldn't even see them. And my mother said, but they were her flowers. And so I was aware that 
there were many levels on which I thought the flowers were needed. And of course, they weren't my flowers. So my mother took me to the woman's house to apologize. And do you know I wouldn't apologize? <laughs> Who did I think I was? <laughs> my mother did not know what to do with me. Really, she just didn't know what to do with me. So she apologized to the woman. And, um, but the woman wanted me to humiliate myself. But I was unwilling to humiliate my mother. It's very interesting. I was probably in fourth grade, and uh, so however old I would have been. And I would not humiliate my mother in front of a woman who was being cruel in a way that was not in balance. Mm -hmm. There were her flowers. I was wrong to take her flowers. I could have asked my mother, could we go to Aunt Florence's and pick some of her roses? Could we go to Aunt Jen's up on the hill and pick some of her many kinds of flowers? But I didn't ask her to do that because my mother was allergic to flowers. So even carrying them in the car would have given her asthma, right? So there were, aren't we all like this? There were many levels going on of my theft of the flowers from Mary. Water into wine. I still pray for that woman. You know, she didn't like children. She couldn't have any. She had a garden. A little girl came into her garden. Maybe that was part of the answer for the children she wanted. She didn't know how to receive a child. She was so injured because she couldn't have one. So when she could have one, I would have come and helped her in her garden. See, isn't that warfare? We just can't meet. You know, and then we have a delightful story about the flowers for Mary. And the nuns were like, oh, my God, these flowers are so beautiful. So I'm looking up at the altar, and there are the stolen flowers at Sunday Mass. There they were. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't mean it like I won something. I just was aware. And the flowers that are, like, the flowers of destruction are sitting before the, st the statue of Mary. And my mother is, still doesn't quite know, what is she going to do with me as I slowly enter adolescence? Yes. Anyway, so there you go. Yeah. So many years later, I got to visit Ephesus in the areas where Mary lived her last years. And there's a tiny stone house that's been built out of rocks that the original house was built out of. It was it kind of came into ruin over the centuries. And then different people reconstructed it. And for several centuries, it was just the story itself fell away from the West. And then, uh, I don't know when I went, about 30 years ago. <clears throat> and... I had several scholars who were friends say, you don't really think this is where Mary lived. I said, well, we know it's where she lived. It's in all the local lore. It's not just in the local lore. It's in the lore of Mesopotamia, Turkey, parts of the Holy Land, Greece, all the surrounding countries. It's in the history of all of them. It was not built to um, drag in tourists post-Constantine. It goes earlier than that, that people have always gone to that place. We know the goddesses that were worshipped there. We know the Ephesians then supported that there was the son of a, a like a like a person who was a sort of deity or a, a holy man born of a, of a sacred woman. So they were able to welcome her coming there, right? So historians could find the linear parts of the story. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury went and declared this is really where she lived. And the Pope, 20-some years ago, went, this is really where she lived. 
and then the head of the Eastern Orthodox Church. This is really where she lived. And you walk into the church, and then you come into, it's a small chapel, you walk into the tiny room next to it, and there is a statue of her with the face broken, the features broken off during periods of warfare. It's very poignant to come in and then see a figure of her that's been desecrated and yet stands quietly there. There's a spring underneath that's never failed in 2,000 years. So many of your deepest pilgrims come and they don't so much go to the church or the site, they come and gather the water. And they drink it or use it for ablutions, they wash their hands or bathe their face or take some of it home with them. Right? This place of that woman from 2,000 years ago. So the points that I feel are caught in humanity right now, we talked yesterday about uh, certain historical things, and thank you so deeply for letting me speak of that. Uh, by 1991, I talked about this with dinner with several people last night. In 1991, the, the, what I call the world teachers, people who are just very mystically aware in regional and national and international areas, we were all shown that there were a pattern of diseases coming to the earth, kind of according to how much we got our act together in all, the human race. And there were 14 diseases according to how much we did or didn't do our work. And there was a state of receptivity and a lack of reaction, unlike anything I had experienced in these colleagues. They're sort of like, it's sort of like being baby lion cubs. They play and jostle with each other and they get along and then they don't and they work out their theologies and then they don't, but they work out their big assignments together. And then they each have their own traditions, you know, and sometimes they're respectful of one another and sometimes they're not. But in this case, they were just sober. They were aware of their own mortality and that it, I would call it a punitive experience. We had, we had taken the flowers from the garden and the creator of that garden was not at, not at peace with us. Do you want to up higher? Okay. And so <clears throat> I just was with it very deeply and then was aware, okay, humanity has to take a different care of the earth and all of creation and of one another or we'll go through a series of disciplinary experiences of disease. We haven't really grown up with that. Elders have. I, I grew up when polio was present in my childhood. Uh, a, a little boy who was in my class had a very serious case of it and was very badly impaired his whole life. Um, I know other people who had terrible cases of it. I know the fear that passed through my parents' generation is that disease would ebb and flow in society in the 1950s. And much of our modern medicine in allopathic traditions was unavailable to the 1950s and 60s. There were not antibiotics. There were not most of the modern medications for metabolic challenges like diabetes or the cardiovascular system or the central nervous system. So there's been this tremendous movement of ease in health so if people follow homeopathic or natural remedies, much of the pharmacopoeia is ancient and has become very internationally known. But the modern allopathic qualities, most of those are within the last 50 to 80 years. 
So a lot of death and disease is not a great reality. We live very separated from childbirth and dying in our culture and have developed what David Attenborough calls this deep comfort in this particular, what is it called, the Anthropocene, this era. He said it's very good for the human being, at least in our deep comfort of what we think, but it's not so good for the environment and who we are over time in that. So the diseases seem to be coming in as a sort of way to call us awake, that there's something more than our own ego thinking, I know what to do, I know who I am, you know, this is what I want, this is, this is what I think, and our arguments with each other about that. So, as the diseases came in, I remember when AIDS first came in, I had a lot of gay men who came to see me in Seattle where I lived, and people were dying. People wouldn't touch the men who had it. People would walk away from them in a hospital or around them. Uh, doctors I knew and nurses didn't know whether they could touch the person and catch it through the skin initially or the breath. Uh, it wasn't known whether it would start mutating to pass through water and the air. So Blaine and I took AIDS medications into Southern Africa when not even the Red Cross was going because it was like the pandemic. People did not know how the disease was going to move through humanity. And the men would come to me and know that they had it and they would cry. They had a death sentence before them. They knew that they could not find their way to resolving healing in that particular body. So there are tens of thousands of mostly men, there are women also, of course, but mostly men who, who simply died and, and moved out of our society in the 1980s. Just, it just went away, they just went away. And of course, all over our world. So as the illnesses came in, I started teaching in Santa Fe, and that's really, it's almost like I was stimulating humanity, please do your homework. We don't want the earth to go through what it might go through if we don't do our homework. And then I would bring another principle forward and another and another. And all the classes I've taught since 1991 are really that stimulation to have us awaken enough and work together collaboratively enough globally that we don't have to have the world kind of fall apart in a manner that is not necessary and would be foolish, would be foolish. So I don't think all 14 diseases will come into humanity. I think we've been able to avoid about six of them through movements. Like Ebola did not pass into a global pandemic. It's a terribly difficult illness, but it would be one of those illnesses that was kind of coming. They're almost like the old plagues in, um, in the days of the Pharaoh and Moses that we, would be talked about. And the ways that the Old Testament would refer to the lessons that humanity was learning. But I want you to be aware of them because in the pandemic, people are trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. And the dissonance in communication is extreme for people. One article will say one thing, another will say something completely different. And scientists and physicians will be saying opposite viewpoints. And then much of what is known is not actually presented to the public in a way that would be logical. Like the scientific method is a proven method, but we aren't teaching people in that manner. 
of how to be present with it in an intelligent and sort of fluid way. So, so it's caused people a great deal of anguish and distrust in one another as human beings, which is very sad, very sad. So as you feel that quality of the diseases out there, if you just try to find your way through it, that you like the, um, I don't know how we call it, the higher karma, or the, the deeper pathway, where we don't have to enter that, that deep discipline that is more, um, that is terrifying and, and is apocalyptic in its nature. We don't have to enter an apocalyptic view that's destructive, but one that's transformative. I think that's really important for people. Now, let me let them finish this and then I'll do the next piece. <laughs>